Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. I think getting lost in Brooklyn is no problem for my next guest, who is from there. And he is the novelist James McBride, whose books include The Color of Water, uh, to much acclaim, and a new one out now called Song Yet Sung. And he is uh, also a saxophone player. He's a distinguished writer in residence at New York University. And he divides his time, as they say, between Pennsylvania and New York. Please welcome James McBride to West Coast Live. It's not often you. Uh, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's a magnificent, magnificent book that you've written, and you have a uh, a way of writing that just is so musical. And I see that you've come with your saxophone. Yeah. Well, I don't leave home without it. You know. Yeah. Just, uh, you know, bring this and some condoms. Anything's possible. I, I realized I, I saw out in the in the front here of, of Joe's pub. They've got a big bowl of condoms hanging out with with subway maps on them. So you can, you can take out a condom and sort of look and see where you want to go in the subway. That's because Roy Blount needs to get home. He needs to <laughs> you know, the last time I saw him, he was laying on his back at the stage. You know, I play with the rock bottom remains of sometimes, Kathy, right, Omar, right, and others. Right. Uh, it's a terrible experience, but <laughs> the last time I saw Roy, he was laying on his back. We were playing somewhere in New York, and he fell on stage, and he just was like, I don't know why he fell, really. He just, I guess he just looked at me and he just, he slowly went down. <laughs> yeah, so I just, I backed away knowing that, uh, you know, maybe Rudy Giuliani might be near and I, he might arrest me. I don't know what happened, but, and then he got up and he was okay, you know, so I'm glad. To he had a spell. He's from the South. You have spells like that well, in the South, right? Well, this was toward the end of the, of the gig, you know, and we were just overcome with joy, you know, because was, the music was so bad, I think he was so happy to be leaving. Um, well, that's a criteria, I understand. You have to be a good writer and a, and, a, and a so-so musician, right? Is that one of the, is that the, are those the criteria? Well, you used the word ringer here. Yeah. There were like two, there are two, three really good ringers in the band, and everyone else is pretty, on a scale of like zero to ten, would be like minus somewhere. So, you know, I mean, that's why I'm in it. You know? yeah. So, but you're, you're in it because you're a writer. I mean, that's, that's, that's the main thing. That's right, yeah. Amy got me into the band. Amy Tan. Amy, Amy Tan got me into the band. God bless her. I, sh- I saw her somewhere, and she, she knew that I was a musician. She asked me to join. And, and uh, it's been, you know, it's, it's, it's been a wonderful experience. Yeah. Did, you, uh, did you become a writer because you had to, or because you, you decided you'd sort of try it out, or...? Uh, you needed a day job compared to being a musician? Well, you know, um, I don't know. I just like to write. I mean, most of the people who I know who are musicians who know I'm a writer say, you know, why do you play music? And most of the writers I know who know I play music say, you know, why do you write, you know? So I just, you know, it was something that was either one or the other. I was used to, I was a journalist for a while, and I quit that, and I played music for eight, nine years, and then I started, I just, I just stopped wanting to travel so much, and, you know, my first book hit, and, you know, as a musician, as, as your people... It hit in a big way. Which mean, The Color of Water? Yeah. Oh, man, I mean, you know, after you write a bestseller like that, you don't know if your jokes are funny anymore, uh-huh. because, you know, everybody thinks, you you know, James McBride, oh, you know, James McBride said, oh, so, uh, yeah, hit in a big way, I was, you know, I wasn't sorry, you know. 
So how did it change? How did, other than the fact that people now laugh at your jokes, I mean, how did it change your uh, how did it change your life? Well, uh, um, you know, I think when you're successful, you just become more of what you really are. So it hasn't changed anything about me intrinsically. I'm mean, I still right from the same little hellhole on 43rd Street that I've been in for years. I haven't changed much. I mean, what do you, what do you mean a little hellhole? I, I have a little f spot on 43rd and 10th that I've been at for, you know, I guess about 10 years. And before that, I was on 42nd between 9th and 10th. I've been in Times Square when it was really wild, you know. I got married. I had my honeymoon. I got married and had my honeymoon in my apartment in Times Square. Where we had the bathroom was in the hallway. You know, the toilet was one of those apartments where the toilet was in the hallway. Yeah, so I remember when Times Square was really, you know. I, frankly, I liked it the old way better, to be honest with you. You, uh, a lot of neon. I walked through there in the rain last night. I had to go to a reading, and, and there was a lot, of, uh, a lot of neon. Well, you know, I heard someone say once that, you know, in the old days, you were afraid that you would be, that when you walked to Times Square, you would be dead. And now, you wouldn't be caught dead in time. <laughs> so, so you passed through there sort of on your way to uh, your, your office. So is this like a rent-controlled office? Yeah, yeah, they want us out, you know. They haven't given us a lease. My roommate and I share with a guy who fixes saxophones. Uh, and they haven't given it. He's from California, actually. Yeah, he's from L.A., in fact. And they haven't given us a, a, a new lease in about two years now. So he fixes saxophones and you write there. Right, yeah, he fixes horns and I write, yeah. The, uh, the opening of, of your new book uh, is talking about uh, a colored slave named Liz Spokot dreamed of the future, and it was not pleasant. She dreamed of Negroes driving horseless carriages on shiny rubber wheels with music booming throughout, and fat black children who smoked odd-smelling cigars and walked around with pistols in their pockets and murder in their eyes. She dreamed of Negro women appearing as flickering images in powerfully lighted boxes that could be seen in sitting rooms far distant, and colored men dressed in garish costumes like children playing odd sporting games and bragging like drunkards. Every bit of pride, decency, and morality squeezed clean out of them. That's the opening paragraph of this book about a woman who has these dreams of the future and what happens to her, but set at the time of slavery. That's a powerful beginning to a book. Well, uh, you know, amen, brother. I mean, I, I, what I thought was, you know, the premise is that this is a woman who dreams of tomorrow, and if slaves could... You know, I saw this movie one time where this guy came, like, from the 1600s. He was a prince. And he visited New York, and I think he was, whoever the actress was, she was in Sleeping in Seattle. Who was the woman who was in Sleeping Seattle? Was that Meg Ryan? Meg, yeah, Meg Ryan, and he visits her, and he's a prince, and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, you know, what if a slave, like, came to life now and saw how black people were living, and saw how America was, you know, you know and I said, you know, a slave would be very disappointed in what we've evolved to, you know, with the rap music and the hip-hop and, the, you know. I mean, blacks, you know, for black Americans, African Americans, our morality always used to be the thing that set us apart. It was the high ground upon which we stood uh, to make ourselves separate, to make ourselves better. And we've traded that in for, you know, for some Cavassier and, you know, and some hip hop and for some, you know, better jeans and better houses. And I'm not sure that if we haven't walked into the, if the house integration isn't like the burning house that we've walked into. There's, there, she also has a dream in, in, the, in the book, uh, which is clearly Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, uh, a speech of inspiration. And, and, uh, and what do you think happened, uh, you know, that, that if a slave came to this, this decade, this year, and looked around, would, uh, what, what do you think intervened? What do you think changed if, if you said that there was this base of morality and it's now gone? 
or or, or oh, not as not necessarily gone, but just different. Video games. Yeah. You know, yeah. materialism, you know, I mean, instant gratification. It, I mean, it's not just for black Americans, it's for all Americans. I mean, you know, uh, there are lots, hip hop culture is great, but there's a lot of it that a lot of parents are concerned about, white parents included, because there's a lot of it that just really just doesn't help, uh, it doesn't help our kids grow strong. Now, that doesn't mean that hip hop culture is any worse than what, you know, than Elvis or, you know, attempts or temptations or Motown or whatever, but it do does mean that. We live in a society, at least currently, now, today, in 2008, where, you know, our leaders tell us to shop. Yeah, yeah. Save, save the country, go shop at a time of national crisis. Right. I mean, you know, they had a thing down in, in D.C., or well, Richmond, where the Walmart was opening at 6, and there were sales, and people were crushing each other to get in. I mean, there was a time when I was a kid, certainly when my mother and father were young, where people would crush themselves to get into church. I mean, not that, you know... Not that you want to get into any some of these, you know, dynamic, you know, televangelistic, you know, super fragile, bull crap places, but you know. Um, but you don't really have an opinion on this. <laughs> well, you know, you know, writers, we we we're supposed to be reflective of what society. We're supposed to tell society what's going on. That's our job, and if we do we do that job effectively, then people will look at what's real and what's not. And if we don't, then, then we're just writing Pulp Fiction. What, uh, I mean, so this is not so much a dream as a, as a nightmare, an imagining of a, of a future that you're now living in, but you, you go back and you take a look at the, uh, the, the slave trade and how, how, how people were able to escape uh, and uh, make use of the, of, the, of the underground. A lot of this is based on historical fact that you, you've researched. Yeah, well, part of the thing that, that you have to remember is that the Wild West was like 20 or 25 years. And we have this whole culture that was, you know, cowboys and Jesse James, who was actually a slave owner and even killed a young 11-year-old for nothing. You know, I mean, we create these heroes out. We create this mythology. And slavery had a lot, a lot of slavery had to do with, um, with white people who really were victimized by the whole business of slavery and having nothing to do. I mean, most white people didn't own slaves. So slavery was this big question that eventually, you know, suck the country into civil war. But before that, you had this whole entire American nation, at least the East Coast, having to deal with these issues that, that most people really had nothing to do with. And so there was this whole economic business of slavery and the Underground Railroad was something that sucked everyone into the vortex. And my book takes place down on the eastern shore of Maryland, which talks quite a bit about the Underground Railroad. And it also talks about the watermen who, who populated the eastern shore. The eastern shore of Maryland is is really was really was and is a fascinating place, and so the book really isn't so much about the Underground Railroad as it is about the web of relationships that existed during slavery. I mean, you could say that you know, Gone with the Wind was like about the web of relationships that existed during slavery too, except that you know, blacks are like you know portrayed as bubbling idiots, you know, who just kind of babbling. But I mean, in in real life. Um, a song yet sung tries to portray the world as it really was and deals with the ambivalence. I mean, one of the slave catchers in Song Yet Sung is a black guy, for example. Uh, another slave catcher is an ambivalent white man who really just needs the money. And another slave catcher is a, a white woman who was, who was a beautiful yet ruthless kind of charismatic person. And these people are all based on, re on real characters. When you, uh, when you were researching this, did you, did you come across anything that was startling to you that you hadn't known before that, uh, you know, through folk literature? Well, Harriet Tubman mostly. Yeah. 
Because Harriet Tubman is kind of portrayed as like kind of like an Aesop's fable character or like, you know, kindergarten, you know, like she was really good, you know, she led these people to freedom, ah, you know. Well, you know, in fact, her life was really a dynamic, exciting situation. I mean, it just looses the imagination how this woman, and I, I met a historian in, down on the Eastern Shore, a white guy named John Crichton, who took me on some of the trails, some of the places that she, you know, where she led the Underground Railroad, and a lot of it was by water. And a lot of the watermen who were involved were both black and white. So, and also, Harriet Tubman would dream. She was struck as a kid. She was struck in the head as a child. And she would fall asleep at any time. And she would often dream. And she said these dreams often were proph prophesized the coming moments or the coming days or even the coming months and helped her in her, in her drive to run the Underground Railroad. You have a phenomenal uh, scene where uh, she takes on uh, a black man little George, who is a slave catcher and, and, uh, and dominates these other slaves, and takes him on in a, in, a, in, a, in a violent and successful way. And I wonder you know, how you imagine that particular scene uh, where she puts a, a pike in her mouth. What is, and a pike is what, like is a, she, a big nail? Or? Well, you know, in the old houses, they, they, instead of using nails, I mean, they could use nails, they'd use like eight or seven inch long pieces of wood that was, that was basically used as, to fasten joists and so she takes it in her mouth and as he grabs her and tries to attack her she puts her chained arm, arms around his neck and pulls him close and drives the pike into his into his neck bold did you rehearse that scene somewhere before you wrote it to see how it worked well you know having wrestled with many cab drivers here in new york <laughs> I, you know. uh no but i mean at a certain point the characters start to do these things on their own i had to come up with some way for her to begin the attack on Little George, because Little George, this slave catcher, is attacked by all by, by 14 other people who are all chained together. So I, I just needed something to just drop him to a knee so that the rest could attack him. What uh, you use, uh, I don't know, at least half a dozen different phrases to describe black people, uh, including the so-called N-word, and and I wonder, uh, you know, how you. You thought about the reason to vary the use of description, you know, African American, or I don't think you used African American in the book. Colored, black, Negro. Um, I, you know, that didn't bother me so much. I mean, that wasn't really the most difficult part of of describing. But I mean, I use colored, I use Negro, black, you know, the, so the N word. I, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter as long as you get the story out the gate. You know, push the push the boat into the sea and let the storm, let the wind grab the sails and move on. I mean, uh, the semantics of what people call black folks has never really concerned me that much. I don't care what you call me, so long as you don't call me late for supper. I mean, uh, it, you know. Well, that can't be totally true. Well, Mr. McBride. I mean, well, I mean, you can call me Monsieur McBride. <laughs> I prefer that, actually. I mean, Roy, Roy Blount calls me daddy, but that doesn't mean, you know. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> He said, "Big Daddy, right? Okay, yeah, Big Daddy. Well, no, but I mean, um, you know, look, you just want people to live a decent life, and you want to to lead people to a decency as a writer. All of my books show a great deal of ambivalence when it comes to talking about racialism and slavery and socioeconomic classism, because I'm convinced that race really doesn't matter. I mean, in the long run, God does not check your passport, and He doesn't care what color you are. How much good have you done in this world?" right here, right now, today. 
So it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, they want to have funerals for the N-word and so forth. I, I, when I, a black girl you know, told me that. She said, you know, what do you think about the notion of having a funeral for the N-word and so forth? I told her, I said, make some money. Go to school and make some money. And don't mess with that foolishness. So Bill Cosby made uh, you know, a storm about uh, you know, of, of, of commenting on the role of education uh, and, and a way that black people were speaking or not speaking. Uh, what was your reaction when you heard what he, he was talking about? Well, I, I respect Bill Cosby, but I'm not sure that he's the appropriate person to be talking about that. I mean, he doesn't really, you know, I think it's, it's, it's really unfair to scapegoat poor people in terms of how they talk to their children. He hasn't been poor in a long time. He hasn't missed a meal in a long time. And he hasn't grown up in the America that exists today. America's a very, very hard place to raise children for any single parent of any race. I've been all over this country. I can tell you it's just as hard in West Virginia and Columbus, Ohio, as it is in, in fact, it's easier in Manhattan than it is to raise, it's easier to be a middle class, it's easier to have money and live in Manhattan and raise a kid than it is to be a middle class person in a place like Columbus or you know, Lafayette, Louisiana or you know, Memphis, Tennessee. It's really hard. So I don't think Bill, Bill Cosby's qualified to tell black, the black community that they really need to get this, their act together and how they're talking to the kids. He, he's kind of out of touch. I mean, he's, a, he's done a lot. He's done more than I've done in terms of his money. But I think that he's... And I don't think, I don't think he should be credited. I don't think that... I, I think he shouldn't be given this license to yak away about black America. I mean, you don't see, like, you know... You don't see Woody Allen, you know, frolicking around Manhattan saying, you know... You don't see him getting on CNN. You don't see CNN grabbing him and saying, what do you think of, you know, white Jewish people? You know, I mean, he's just, just another guy. I mean, Cosby, I mean, talk to Spike Lee. Spike Lee has a much healthier view of, you know, of black America than Bill Cosby. And you don't see him marching around and, you know, even Stefan Marbury, who plays for the New York Knicks, who people, you know, hate in New York. This guy, at least he created a $10 or $12 tennis shoe. I don't recall any other NBA athlete doing that. I don't recall any other NBA athlete, you know, I don't, I don't see Cosby, I haven't seen Cosby do anything like that. So, I, I, you know, I don't buy into his, you know, watch the parents. That, that just absolves white people of their responsibility, absolves society of its responsibility to take care of business when it comes to poor in this, in this, in this country. It's, uh, James McBride's new book is called Song Yet Sung, a song that you have to sing a second time. Uh, there's a code uh, that, that gets learned, a code of of survival. Were you raised with a sense of a code, a way of, of being in the world? I'm in an Yeah. Yeah, my, when I was a little kid, my mother would sing The Lion King to me, and she'd say, hum de na No, I mean, uh, I, I used to... That old spiritual. Yeah, just, you know, hum de na you know, and then we'd come down, we'd be like the giraffe. You know when you go to The Lion King, all the animals come down, you know. <laughs> Elton John singing to you, tonight. Now, we, um... <laughs> we went to church all the time. And, you know, in church, there was and there still is in the black church, in the real black church. I'm not talking about the televangelist, but I mean in the real black Baptist church, there was this feeling that there was a historical element that these songs had some meaning. Wade in the water, we will break bread together, take me to the water to be baptized. Even now, even as a grown man, those words still have a lot of resonance for me. And um, I used to hear when I was in high school, that they were like black codes of the underground. There were a couple of records called black codes of the underground. There was always this, 
this, you know, spinning in the air, this business, there were codes that black people used to become free. Later on in college, you know, when I went to school, I learned that, you know, there were songs like Wade in the Water, Take Me to the Water, We Will Break Bread. Um, you know, these were all used as codes to help, you know, to, to warn slaves and so forth, and to, use, to be used in the Underground Railroad. So I felt and still feel that there were codes that we never knew about. I mean, Frederick Douglass never told how he got free. Harriet Tubman never revealed how she got like some 300 people to freedom. We'll never know. The only way we know the codes existed really is from the music. I mean, you know, Kurt Vonnegut once said the only reason why he believes in God is because of music. I mean, he just because, you know, because music makes you believe in God. And, um, and I asked him before he died how he got such, such a great, you know, because his characters, his black characters in his short stories are just extraordinary. And I asked him how he, you know, how he came so close to He said, because I was, you know, I had a, the, the quote-unquote black mammy who raised me when I was in Indiana. And also, I used to go listen to jazz. And I would hear this music. And it was just, it, it was like it came from God. So I believe that that's why I talk about the code in the book. And the code is used by blacks, to, by blacks and whites to ferry slaves to freedom. And I believe the codes existed. I don't care. You know, I know some historians say, you know, blah, 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 but, you know, I mean, historians get their names in the paper that way. I mean, but I think the codes existed, and I think the music is an indication that it, that it really is, is, is clear proof. Thank you. James McBride, right. song yet sung. Song yet sung. James McBride. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.